0: Welcome back to our third and final episode of our points of discussion on Spitz Nevi brought to you by Pedra Skin Tumors and Reactions to Cancer Therapy's Focus Study Group. In episode two, we discussed when you might consider excision and did a deep dive into genetics. Now we discuss the future of Spitz Nevi research and hear some questions from our live studio audience. Now a couple of disclaimers before we get started. It's important to note the views and information expressed during this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance or the program presenters. The purpose of this podcast is to be thought-provoking and to stimulate new ideas, new collaborations, and novel research. Any reference to medical treatment or disease management is for this purpose only. It is not an endorsement by PEDRA or its program presenters and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Any decisions related to medical care should be made in consultation with a qualified healthcare provider. I am delighted to welcome back your moderators for today's discussion Dr. Steve Humphrey and Dr. Val Carlberg. Dr. Humphrey is the Associate Professor of Dermatology and Pediatrics at the Medical College of Wisconsin and Children's Wisconsin. And Dr. Valerie Karlberg is the Associate Professor of Dermatology and Pediatrics at Medical College of Wisconsin and Children's Wisconsin as well. I'd also like to welcome back our speakers, Dr. Pedram Garami, Professor of Dermatology, Pathology, and Pediatrics at Northwestern University, and Dr. Kristen Berebi. She is the Assistant Professor and Pediatric Dermatologist at the University of Iowa. And in one last bit of housekeeping business, I would like to invite our presenters to state any disclosures that may be relevant to this discussion.
1: Hi, I'm Steve Humphrey, and my disclosures are um, some grant and funding research uh, for my institution through Celgene, um, Insight, Pfizer. I've also received fees for Data Safety Monitoring Board for Novan and have been uh, gotten or have had honoraria from Elsevier Incorporated.
2: I'm Dr. Valerie Curl and I have no disclosures. I'm Dr. Kristen Borebi, and I have no disclosures.
3: Well, my name is uh, Padram Garami. I have done some consulting work for Castle Biosciences, but it's none of it is relevant to um, the current uh, discussion.
0: And now I would like to turn it over to Dr. Humphrey and Dr. Carlberg.
1: Thank you again, Jen. Welcome back to our third podcast on points of discussion. In episode one, we discussed the background of spitz uh, talked about nomenclature and it introduced the idea of monitoring. In episode two, we talked about when we are uh, would plan for excision um, and also discuss testing modalities as well as uh, more um, information on the genetics for spitz neoplasms. I mean, if you remember in our last episode, we kind of talked about you know not removing all spitz nevi, but the, the things that make us uh, more likely to remove them, and then when we might pursue further testing. Um, and then today we're gonna talk a little bit more about some of that genetic testing and how that's gonna influence our clinical decision-making and, and then spend the last few minutes just talking about what the future might hold, what what research we still need to do to really best understand spitzoid neoplasms. So welcome back today, uh, Drs. Berebi, Garami, and Carlberg again, and I'll turn over to Val.
4: Thanks, Steve. Um, so this question is to Dr. Berebi. When would you consider sending out a spitzoid neoplasm for ancillary testing? Are there specific findings on pathology? Is this a decision that you make or the pathologist
2: or do you talk about it together? Um, Take me through your thought process. Absolutely. Um, So it's an excellent question. This is typically a decision that we make collectively. Um, I have wonderful dermatopathologists at my institution uh, and as Dr. Gurami alluded to previously, there um, is a lot to be considered when looking at the histopathologic diagnosis of a, a spitzoid neoplasm and designating it as a spitz or something else. And so the question is, it does come into the histologic mor- morphology of the lesion itself, what it looks like uh, under the microscope. And um And the clinical is helpful in that scenario if, it seems to have aggressive clinical features, but ultimately, it really comes down to what it looks like under the microscope. For the most part, the dermatopathologists here at my institution will let me know that they have seen very concerning clinical features under under the microscope. We may take a look at it together. Typically, we like to have our residents involved in that as well, and um, and they may suggest at that point sending it out. In which case, uh, we have a couple of different places that we potentially send, including to Dr. Gurami. Um, but also uh, affiliation with the NIH study that's ongoing as well. And there are other institutions that that do that testing. So bottom line is, it matters what it looks like under the microscope. And I trust my dermatopathologists to tell me if they're really concerned about something. And if they're concerned, then I'm concerned. And that's typically when we, when we send it out. In terms of IHC testing versus ancillary studies, this is actually... Where the study that I'm doing through Pedra uh, was born, <laughs> I would say. So the question I had several that came to me that had had ancillary testing done uh, earlier on in when this was becoming. It's becoming more and more commonplace to do these ancillary tests, and um, but what do they mean? And so that's the real question, right? Is what do these ancillary tests mean? What does the IHC mean? can we put them together or are they indicative of something? And what I would say is what, preliminarily we're kind of seeing through this multi-center retrospective study as well as just in general the more IHC tests that are ordered the more concerning the lesion is Um, and at some point if you're ordering tons of IHCs cannot diagnose the lesion uh, and are just ordering more and more to try and characterize it and then really I mean I think if the dermatopathologist is thinking about ordering, you know, 10 plus IHCs, maybe it's time for that ancillary test, as Dr. had had said before. So, yes, the testing can be expensive, but in my view, as a clinician and seeing all of these at my institution, uh, I feel strongly that these will eventually become characterized by their genomic makeup and uh, that they will probably be characterized by the sequencing. And that's how we're going to determine how a tumor is going to act. So, you know, we know very well in genodermatoses, one of the things I discuss with families with genoderms uh, in a child is, well, genetic testing is very helpful if we can get a, de- you know, a specific mutation. There are known associations with specific mutations. We're starting to collect more and more of that data. And I think over time, that's going to be true of most tumors um, and certainly spitzoid tumors, I would hope. Um, I feel like they behave differently based on their mutations. And so those ancillary tests can be very helpful. I think we need to know more about the characteristics of each of these tumors, these types of fusion tumors that we are seeing um, that have. Have not been previously described because we didn't have the testing before and now we have it and we're utilizing it more and more frequently and we can begin to characterize the behavior of these tumors based on the, the ancillary tests and um I'm excited for that possibility moving forward. I hope that this testing becomes more and more feasible, more and more cost affordable. I definitely feel that we are heading in that direction. So in terms of whether we make the decision together, it is a collective decision based on clinical findings, as well as histopathologic findings. And then the ancillary testing can be very, very helpful in characterizing potential for how this tumor is going to behave moving forward.
4: Kristen, thank you for some of the preliminary insights from your Pedro study. We are so excited to hear more about this um, uh, since we've definitely sent some some patients over to you. I'll turn
1: it over to Steve now. So we're just going to switch gears a little bit and talk about what you do with this added information. So this is for um, Dr. Gramey, Brevi, and also for you, Dr. Carlberg. Feel free to chime in too. So what do you do if you're receiving a pathology report for an atypical spitzoid tumor um, with ancillary tests included? How does this influence your decision regarding further management, such as re-excision? Does it matter for margin size, increased surveillance? Um, How do you, what do you do with that?
2: It's very challenging because again, we don't have a lot of data to, we're just beginning to collect the data on what kind of mutations these tumors have at baseline, like What's this tumor actually? What fusion does it have? What what mutations does it have that's making it that's leading it to do X, Y and Z? Um, and so it, it is a very challenging um, thing to synthesize when we're still collecting information. So in terms of surveillance after these tumors, that has been clinically very Very difficult. And uh, just because we do not have the data yet. Um, And that has been one of my greatest frustrations is when a parent and, and or a child comes to me and says, well, what do we what does this mean? What do we do with it? I say, you know, I can't tell you, I'm, I'm not sure. And that's why I'm going to see you back this frequently. I usually do three month follow-ups if I'm very concerned clinically and it has concerning histopathologic features, then we see them every three months to just make sure that it is not, you know, if it's excised, I usually, you know, my philosophy is out is out right now. Um, the problem with this is that we're not looking at NFA surgical mar- margins. We're not looking at 100% of the surgical margin. We are looking at bread loafed sections uh, based on formal and fixed specimens. Um, and so that's why I feel like clinical surveillance in a in a tumor that has some of those high risk features, right, is so important right now because we don't know. We don't know, and we hope to continue, you know, collecting more data um, and characterizing this and separating out these tumors that are all lumped into one kind of pan of spitzoid right now, right? It's all spitzoid um, if they have those features. But as Dr. Garami said, they have very specific mutations and specific you know, staining patterns and things like that that can potentially be helpful. So in terms of margins, in terms of what to do clinically, in terms of what sort of surveillance they need, I tend to certainly be on the conservative side at this point in time because I have seen tumors even in my short practice thus far, relatively speaking, as I'm pretty early on in my career, that have behaved very aggressively, that it's terrifying in a a young child that that happens. It's less common, certainly, than in um, a post-pubertal child or an adult. Uh, But when it happens, it's bad and it happens quickly. And so I think at this point, Clinically, I would err on the side of caution and just say, because we don't have consensus guidelines on what sort of margins we need to take for these tumors. However, if you have a tumor that has some of these more aggressive features, both clinically and histopathologically, I would say closer follow-up is definitely warranted. I typically, whenever I excise something, I will, at every follow-up, feel the surgical scar It is so important not just to look, but to feel as a dermatologist, because so often we think, you know, others may other specialists may think, you know, you're just looking at it, just looking. But it really matters how it feels. And so feel the surgical scar. You can feel if there's a recurrence. You need to feel the lymph node basin. That's one of the things that I always harp on my residents about. Did you feel the lymph nodes? You know, did you touch the patient? Um, You know, you want to get your hands on. And, And then in terms of other surveillance, if they have a rare fusion mutation that hasn't been described, Uh, and there are certain histopathologic features that are consistent with one tumor type or another. For example, I had a specific case that is kind of overlap between a melanoma and a sarcoma in appearance. And so in that case, it's like, do we follow the melanoma guidelines or do we follow the sarcoma guidelines? Um, and sarcoma guidelines, you know, you're getting a CT of the chest very, you know, every couple, every three months, every three to six months. And, um, there's just not good consensus. And I really hope coming down the line, there there's better consensus with more data. And that's what's certainly motivating me to do these studies, as I previously considered myself only a clinician. And now I'm f- venturing into the research world. Um, but I think there's a lot to be learned and a lot to be gained from characterizing these things and coming up with consensus guidelines for treatment.
3: First, I'd say I'm uh, also in this um, ballpark of out is out. And I basically will look at lesions from like two kind of two two different major buckets we can put them in. One is a lesion that we've like genomically classified and we know what it is. Like for example, let's say I see a lesion that is you know very atypical and spitzoid, and we do some genomics and we find that it's an N-track fusion. OK, so I know right away this belongs to the Spitz family. And then, you know, let's say it does not have a TERP promoter mutation analysis. Uh, it's negative for TERP. A lesion like that, even if it's very atypical, I'm very comfortable with, you know, it just being marginally out or just a negative margin of, of, of any sort. And even in some cases, if it's a positive margin, if it's, you know, uh, if it the tests are negative and morphologically, it's not. A lesion that I think is severely atypical, or to the point of melanoma, I would I would feel comfortable even monitoring uh, something like that. On the other hand, we have lesions where, let's say we we don't know exactly what's going on. Let's say we we don't have mutational analysis, we don't have a fusion analysis, we don't know what the driver is, and have some uncertainty there, then, you know, I may be a little bit more aggressive in in the excision and and in the monitoring. And the reason I can say this is even though we may not have tons of data specifically on on these lesions, we have some data where we can make some inferences. And and that would be the following. When we look at large databases of melanoma, and that can be the TCGA, Tumor Cancer Genomic Atlas of melanoma, where many melanomas have been sequenced, or if we look at melanoma from the Cosmic Database or other major databases that have sequenced a lot of melanoma cases, we really do not find very commonly things like NTRAC fusions or ALK fusions, they're extremely rare. They, they happen. I mean, I, not to say that it doesn't happen. It does happen, but they're really quite rare. What our assessment can kind of, our inference can kind of be from that is that even though they may have the potential to, to transform to melanoma, it's, it's really quite a rare thing if it's a true Spitz-associated fusion with Spitz morphology. And, and I think that that, epidemiologic data is very helpful. And then the second thing would be if we look at pediatric patients and the ones that are getting aggressive disease or, or actually, let's say, dying of metastatic melanoma, it really isn't patients with atypical Spitz tumors or even things that were diagnosed as Spitz melanoma. You know, the most common cause of death of melanoma in a pediatric patient and I'm talking prepubertal here. I'm talking, you know, below puberty, is really melanoma arising in medium or large size congenital nevi. We really do not have a lot of bona fide cases of fusion spits that have progressed to distant metastasis and have killed a, a kid. We, as a group in the International Melanoma Pathology Group, try to bring those cases to the table and. Experts from all over the world, and we maybe had like two or three cases. So I think even though we, we may not have the strong, controlled, systemized study that we would hope to get to at one point, the lower level data that we have, all the inferences that we can make from the data that is available, is that in true fusions, the risk is really quite low, even when they look really bad. And I think that that concept is becoming more accepted and understood among pathologists, dermatopathologists, at least. And I think that it's also resulting in a a higher threshold among the whole DermPath community In what they're calling melanoma, a spitz melanoma, now that they can really more specifically tell if something is a true spitz or not.
2: I was just going to give you a little follow-up on that too, um, within my own study, we, and this is all, you know, data that hasn't been released yet, but (laughs) um, we're still in the process of, of, we're pretty much done data cleaning. But in all the cases from, you know, uh, 13 different institutions that we had, um, we looked at about, I think in total, ultimately about 450 cases of atypical spitz tumors or spitzoid melanomas. That's all of them. That's included in one group. And out of all of those, there were no deaths. I have had one case personally subsequent to the time period that we're looking at the retrospective study uh, that has become metastatic in a young child. This patient had to be put on a PD-1 inhibitor and that's ongoing. So there is that caveat, like Dr. Garami said, you know, maybe... There, there are those cases, but they are very, very few. And, um, and in our entire study, there were no deaths.
1: That's great news.
4: Yeah, thank you for again, for those insights. And um, what a beautiful, I think, summary Dr. Gramey gave too. and uh, especially with the kind of international insights that you bring as well. Um, although I haven't been doing any of these larger studies, I, I really rely on the evidence that you all are putting out there. And when I receive a pathology report of an atypical Spitz tumor, and, and that's what it tends to be more these days, I, I don't have a lot of spitzoid melanomas um, or Spitz melanomas coming across my my desk. Um, our wonderful dermatopathologist, one of them actually trained with Dr. Gr- Grammy So um, perhaps we have her to thank for her excellent expertise she gained from you. If ancillary tests are included, I I take that information in, we discuss it um, with the patient and the family, Um, but it thus far hasn't necessarily impacted uh, the management um, regarding margins or or surveillance, Um, particularly because I I think earlier when we were getting more of these tests, sometimes it was even contradictory. For example, they were seeing you know, loss of P16 staining in the lesion, but then no no chromosomal aberrations on fish. Um, So I didn't kind of know how to interpret that always. Um, But in general, um, I look forward to maybe some evidence-based consensus guidelines regarding margin size eventually. Um, Out is out also in my books. Um, If it is atypical, it's coming out with a margin um, and that margin depends kind of on location of the body with narrower margins on the face, and then maybe uh, a little bit lighter on er other areas where there's a little more leeway. And then I also um, do more frequent observation in the first few years with every three months, like Dr. Varevi said, um, taking notes of the scar of the entire body, because we also know that these patients may be at risk for developing other neoplasms and then also a very thorough lymph node examination.
1: Uh, Kind of a follow-up to that. I know we talked about, you know, feeling the lymph node basin for an atypical spitz tumor, not a true melanoma, not a melanoma that's arisen from a giant or large CMN. Do you suggest, or do you recommend ever consider getting a sentinel lymph node biopsy done?
2: I will tell you that in my experience, so one thing that I do now, uh, is not necessarily recommend a sentinel lymph node, uh, but is to, if it is a high risk tumor, clinically or histologically, I will get an ultrasound of the associated lymph node basin. That, uh, has proven to be very useful for me and my own clinical practice rather than subjecting the child to potentially significant morbidity from having, um, a sentinel node and then subsequent dissection of the area. Obviously, there are studies that show, importantly, that sentinel node positivity does not reflect on prognosis for these. Um, We can see these cells in a node in the sentinel node, and it not uh, not portend a a worse prognosis. So, I I do not recommend them typically unless there is some concerning finding um, on ultrasound. Or clinical exam. That's my, my own practice. I was going to say my experience with ultrasound, um, actually was something that I did after a high risk kind of tumor. I wouldn't necessarily do it on all. Um, I think that the high risk tumors are the ones that you really need to consider that kind of monitoring for a lymph node basin. I, I feel okay about my lymph node exams, but in those axillary nodes, boy, they can really hide. So, um, Axillary sur- surveillance for high risk tumors via ultrasound certainly is something to consider.
1: And I think kind of my last question I had before we turn it over to our a uh, couple questions from our medical students. Um, so, what sort of things would we need to do to get some of these tests validated? You know, think about TURP promoters. Is it just having more data? Are there other? What are kind of the the mechanisms we would need to do to get to that point where we can say, okay, we're going to do this. It's validated.
3: Ideally, you'd want to have like a prospective study where you'd um, gather uh, cases prospectively, and um, we, we, we actually do have retrospective studies, and, and those and the retrospective data does show that there is a statistically significant correlation with TERP promoter mutation and an adverse prognosis. Now, There's a couple things that I would like to explain about that is like one is that as long as the data is retrospective, then there's always be those that, you know, want a higher level of evidence and maybe rightfully so and and want prospective data. So I think having a a large study with prospective data would be the next step in in kind of more validation of something like TERT promoter. And then the other thing that I think that one has to understand that one of the things that can be complicated whenever you're testing on very rare diseases or or diseases that have very rare bad outcomes, which in this case, what we would have to acknowledge, and I think even without any data or official or prospective data, I think all the people involved, and whether you're an expert or not an expert, would agree that probably true spits in a child with aggressive behavior is a relatively rare finding. Conversely, benign spits not so rare. So we have we have a lot of spits and neoplasms, and the incidence of having an adverse tumor or a tumor with metastasis in that group is going to be very low. When you when you are designing a test to look at something like that that can kind of detect the 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 which tumor is going to be the bad the bad one. Of course specificity is important. So let let's say that we say that TERP promoter mutation analysis is very specific, right? So let's say let's say we give it a high specificity of 95% specific for you know being a, a bad tumor. Well that sounds really good, right? Because 95% sounds like a high number. Oh, specificity is very high. But really what is much more relevant than specificity is the positive predictive value, because you have to consider the incidence of the disease in the population. And that's something that PPV or positive predictive value considers that specificity doesn't, right? Specificity is intrinsic to the test. Whereas the positive and negative predictive values also incorporate the incidence of the disease in the population. So if you have a test that's 95% specific, but like there's like a thousand benign cases, I mean, you still get 5% of a thousand that are positive, right? Because that's the false positivity rate is 5%. So now you have 5% of a 1,000 cases being positive, okay? And let's say what what's 5% of a 1,000 is 50 cases. So then you have 50 positive cases. And let's say there's one true melanoma out of the 1,000. And let's say that one's positive. So the positive predictive value is only one out of 51. It's like 2%. So that is a challenge of any test where you're trying to detect something that is rare, a rare event among, you know, many benign type of tumors. And that's just a statistical challenge that we have to deal with and be aware of. I hope that made sense.
1: No, it does. Thank you very much. Well, I'm going to start uh, off by having our studio audience ask a couple questions as we close up episode three here. Um, so I'm going to turn over to Carmen. Carmen, would you be able to uh, introduce yourself where you're from? and then ask your question, and then you can pass it along to uh, someone else. Uh, I'm a fourth-year medical student um, here at the Medical College of Wisconsin. I have a particular interest in pediatric dermatology. So I guess my biggest question is, uh, do you think we ever will have evidence-based guidelines uh, for the management of Spitzoid neoplasms?
2: That is certainly the goal. That's something that I would That's what's motivating me, again, as primarily a clinician to go into the research world and make this happen, hopefully, uh, because it would be great to have some sort of consensus guidelines. But it is a very, very complex, obviously, issue because uh, there are so many levels to this in terms of how they're characterized genotypically and histologically and clinically. It would be great if we could get to that point. And I think we're working towards that goal. But um, it's going to take some time.
3: Yeah, I would say that um, I think we'll get there eventually, but it's a big process. And as I kind of described earlier, it's a moving target because what we called spits before, it may be different than what we're calling spits now, because before we were completely reliant on a morphologic definition, and now genomics has become part of the definition. So I personally... I won't accept any data as being convincing to me unless there's been genomic studies on the lesions counted as spits. Like if I saw a huge study of 2000 spits lesions tomorrow, that would mean nothing to me because I would not know. I mean, who judged them as spits? You know, I, I don't you know, I mean, just a morphologic eye is not enough You know, we really need to know because we now we know there are these spitz mimickers. So one, we need a a real study that would be convincing to me would be one, that everything has to be genomically characterized. And then two, you, you need higher numbers and you need a perspective. So that's a challenge, right? Because it's expensive. You have to sequence those cases. You need... A lot of cases, you need enough cases that a, a, a tumor that only very rarely does something aggressive, we need enough cases to capture statistically significant amount of aggressive numbers. So it's a challenge, but I think it'll happen eventually.
2: And and there are ongoing efforts to do that. Um... Michael Sargon, who's also a dermatopathologist at uh, the NIH, he is trying to do the prospective study, study, and um, it's coming along very nicely. It's a multi-center study as well, and to sequence these tumors, and it does require multi-center participation, because I mean, they're just, again, those are pretty rare tumors. And especially when you're getting into genetic mutations and characterizing them by that, which I think they should be based on how they behave. And, and that could be indicative of behavior. Um, but he's trying to synthesize that. And it's an ongoing study, uh, multi-center study, prospective study at the NIH currently. So
4: I'm, I'm so glad that you mentioned that, Kristen, because as Dr. Garami I had also indicated some of these tests can be a barrier patients and um, part of the study that Dr. Sargon has going on at the NIH includes some funding to do these studies at, at no cost to the patients. So um, for anybody who happens to be listening, that is an open um, study to anybody um, who wants to send patients and there is information about that on the um, the um, National Institute for Health website. Otherwise, they can reach out to us <laughs> to, connect, um, to connect with Dr. Sargon.
1: Thank you all. All right, Maria.
4: So, what I'm curious to know if preliminary data indicate that there is some phenotypic uh, correlation between any of uh, genetic finding and prognosis for some of these particular lesions. For example, um, Dr. Bereley, you mentioned that one uh, of your patients has metastatic lesions and so is on the rhythm. So, I wonder if you noticed any particular uh, phenotypic pathological genotypic risk factors that are peculiar to this lesion.
2: In this particular case, clinically, it was one of these rapidly growing, friable, um, very concerning spots that had previously been biopsied um, and had not, we had not seen, uh, or the outside facility hadn't seen the base of the lesion and it came and it was uh rapidly growing. And so and then we actually uh I believe the sequencing was set to Dr. Garami, it definitely was. And um and it showed a specific fusion that was uh not uh common at all. Let's put it that way. It was very extremely rare not, you know, described and it showed particular features. It was a very unique case. Um, and so, again, I think that the, the, the whole picture has to be put together. The clinical picture, the pathologic fi- fi- um, picture, as well as the, um, the sequencing is very important. And then in terms of how to manage those, that's the question, you know, moving forward with her, we are being very uh, cautious because we don't know exactly how it's going to behave. So, um, again, those features that we kind of identified I think, have putting the whole picture together and uh, close clinical follow up is is very important, as well as imaging for for follow up as well.
1: Thank you, Maria, Christy.
2: Thank you
0: all so much for this series of podcasts. It was wonderful and um, very informative. I wanted to know what is the role of tape stripping, such as a DermTech assay, to evaluate pigment and nevi in children, and especially children who may not be seeing. Um, a pediatric dermatologist, and it, would it be helpful in the future, or is it possible to develop non-invasive assays that would be testing
2: BRAF, Nras, or ALK fusion in order to try to rule in or out spitz lesions? That's a fascinating question. I mean, for me personally, I've not, I've not done tape stripping, um, so I don't know if I, I'm probably not the best person to answer this. I think that's a very interesting thought, and uh, it would be amazing if we could have a non-invasive way of, of sequencing and testing these tumors moving forward.
3: Tape stripping, um, the idea of how it works is that the mRNA that you're gathering is mRNA from melanosomes, from melanocytes, that has been passed from the melanocyte into the keratinocyte, and then is carried into the stratum corneum. So you're gathering stratum corneum mRNA. Um, that that comes from melanocytes. And um, it's really optimal. Really, I mean, in in adult patients, if we're talking about dysplastic nevi and melanoma, 99% of melanin originate in the epidermis, right? So that's why theory wise, it could be useful because you know, the, the melanocytes are high up in the epidermis, they're passing their melanosomes and mRNA into the stratum corneum, and then you can test for that stuff. Now, in kids, a lot of these spitz lesions, they're deeper. They're not intraepidermal or very superficial lesions. They, they could be dermal spitz or compound where most of the atypia is down deep. Tape stripping is not going to capture that for sure. Um, and then the second issue is the exact same thing that I just described with testing for TERT promoter mutation analysis, but it's actually a thousand times worse in the sense that melanoma in the pediatric population, obviously, is not going to be very common. You're going to tape strip and you're going to get a certain number of false positives. And just because the number of benign lesions far, far outweighs the malignant lesions, your number of false positives is going to far outweigh the ability to detect a true positive in the pediatric population. So, um, I definitely do not see any utility of it in spitz lesions, mainly because of the depth. And I think even for testing for melanoma in pediatric patients, personally, uh, the current technology I would see as very, very limited utility for that particular indication.
1: Thank you for that question, Christy. So thank you all for tuning into our Points of Discussion uh, podcast on spitzoid neoplasms. This has been so enlightening. Um, In episode one, we explored the the history of spitzoid neoplasms. We talked about their clinical and histologic findings and and sort of uh, talked about monitoring versus what might lead to excision. In our second episode, we reviewed uh, what we do when we excise uh, these spitzoid neoplasms. We reviewed again, the genetics and some ancillary testing, which ones might be more helpful for our pediatric populations and sort of the difference between peds versus adults. And then in today's episode, we reviewed that further um, and how that influences our management, how we as clinicians will manage uh, patients when we get these test results back and and when is our appropriate times to use those. Um, And and really the important role that these are gonna have in the future and and the work that we are actively doing uh, as dermatologist for this condition. I just want to say thank you so much to Dr. Garami and Barabi. I, I think your expertise and knowledge uh, of this, I-, I have learned so much today and I actually thought I knew a decent amount about this. So thank you. Um, you know, this is a difficult topic. We gotta continue to broaden our horizons with new tools to take better care of our pediatric patients. I'd also like to thank Dr. Carlberg for all her help and expertise in creating this show today. Um, thank you all for your gift of time and experience. And then lastly, a special thanks to our medical student audience for your great questions. And of course, uh, Pedra and Jen Dawson. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention them. So thank you all.
2: Thank you so much for having having me and having us here today to talk about this very important topic. It's been a pleasure.
0: This is our third and final installment in our three-part series, Points of Discussion, about spitz Nevi. To learn more about the work that the Skin Tumors and Reactions to Cancer Therapies PEDRA Focus Study Group is doing, please visit www.pedraresearch.org or click the link in the show notes. We would like to extend a special thank you to Ortho Dermatologics and Insight Pharmaceutical Company for their support of this independent medical education program. PEDRA is solely responsible for all program content and the selection of all presenters, authors, moderators, and faculty. Please make sure you subscribe to the Piedra Pearls podcast channel so you never miss an episode. It's available on iTunes, Google, and Spotify. And make sure that you're tracking our educational material online at piedraresearch.org. And please make sure you're following us on social media. We are on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Piedra Research. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.